Hey, everybody. This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. And this week, I have David back. The last time, we talked about a really fascinating story, the Hollywood case from back in the 50s. And this time, we've got another story. It's it's a, it's a very tragic story and, and quite disturbing. Welcome, David. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. So... As we are beginning the week that this recording will be released, we will be a week after the, hopefully, the uh, turning of 500,000 downloads because we are right up against it. We're at somewhere right now around 490, and I haven't ever done anything to kind of celebrate a milestone. And so this past week, I recorded an episode with Mike from Simple Nursing. And if you guys, for some reason, are listening to this and you haven't listened to that one, that was last week. He came on as just a a special guest, and it was a lot of fun. And it was just to sort of help celebrate the fact that we were turning 500,000 downloads. So appreciate you guys for that. So I guess we can get into our news story. David, I thought this was kind of interesting because this story is talking about male nurses. And it was in the story actually says, Men are nurses. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, I'm a nurse. That's right. Yeah, men are nurses. That's for sure. I can remember a long time ago when I was in high school um, in Sevier County, which is sort of a rural county here in, in Tennessee, East Tennessee. And um, at our high school, we had a vocational school. And I had always been interested in hospitals because I'd gotten so many stitches. Um, and they had a class there called Health Occupations. It was three hours a day for for two years, and um, I got made fun of so many times by so many people for taking that class. It was incredible, and so from a very early time, I guess when I was 15 or 16, I started sort of being chastised a little for being interested, not just in medicine, but in nursing. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because it seems to me, because I work at the hospital where I work, there are a lot of male nurses and probably more male nurses, maybe more male nurses, at least on the unit that I work on. I feel like there's more men than women. Uh, Nothing else is definitely even. So when I saw the article, I just thought, is this like a recent article? This seems so outdated. But then you were just telling me you looked up some data on it. And if you look across the board, 9% you found of nurses are men. That was in 2017. Yes. And er- earlier, though, uh, back in around 2002, I think it was, um, I saw that there were about 6% of nurse- of uh, men, uh, 6% of nurses were men. So it doesn't seem like we've come very far. It's advancing, but it's still, it's very slow. Yeah. And I have to say, though, um, aside from that early time in high school, when I was interested in nursing, uh, I think since I've worked at UT now for 24 years, um, I haven't felt one bit um, chastised or sort of like an outsider, nor have I been discriminated against for being a male nurse. But, you know, sometimes if if I go to a party or hang out with some friends and I meet someone and they ask what I do and I tell them that I'm a nurse, I have sort of found that the conversation quickly shifts to something else. You know, there have definitely been instances where when I've mentioned that I'm a nurse, uh, people didn't really explore that or ask me questions about it. And the conversation sort of moved on. So I don't know if that was because they, you know, were discriminatory or not. But yeah, most of the time, especially at work, I don't feel like there's any discrimination toward men. Do you think so? I definitely don't think so among the workers. Most patients, I would say not. Maybe 
occasionally some older patients uh, or maybe some patients that come from our rural, more rural areas where they're not used to seeing men in nursing and so they don't understand it. It's just people get used to what they get used to. And it's if they think, if whenever they think nurse, they think women, and then a man comes along that's a nurse, it's hard for them to get that the idea out of their head that for some reason has to be a female. And who knows why it's that way, but it's definitely changing. Things like that are really hard to change. It's very, it's a very slow process, I guess, because you, for one thing, you have to have men who are strong enough and confident enough in themselves to pursue that career and be able to proudly say, I'm a nurse. I, I work at UT Medical Center and critical care or whatever, and not care if, if somebody's closed-minded enough to think that that's wrong or you shouldn't be doing that or that's strange. And so I think that maybe there could be a lot of men who want to be in nursing, would love to be in nursing, would be really good at it, but because they don't want to have to go through that, they might, you know, shy away from that and decide to do something else. Well, there might still be a stigma in the community where people don't feel like, or men don't feel like they really want to pursue nursing because they fear they, they might be stigmatized. Yeah, I think that it's, it's definitely getting better. I, I I say that, but then all we know is what we're around. And I, I don't know what other people are experiencing in other areas, in other hospitals. Even other hospitals, they're still inside the city limits, but not necessarily the large level one trauma center. Maybe in the other hospitals, there there aren't as many men. I don't know. I really don't. I, w- I would be really curious to see if, if uh, most men are in the larger hospitals. I don't know. I just wonder about that. You know, what I've wondered about before is that uh, because I'm not a woman, I wonder what, the, what female nurses uh, sort of feel like when they have to, say, put a Foley in or a Dignicare or something like that into a, into a, 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 a male patient. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I can tell you that when I go in to put a Foley or a Dignicare or something like that into a female patient, it gives me pause. And I can remember when I worked in critical care, if I had to, if my patient was a woman and needed a Foley, I would go and ask a female nurse if they would put that in for me. And female nurses have done the same thing for me. And so I guess we sort of still try to respect those privacy issues. So I don't, but I don't know how really an older woman, for example, feels about a guy, you know, putting a catheter in. It's probably very uncomfortable, especially here in East Tennessee. You know, it's getting very rural and conservative, not not politically speaking, but just, you know what I mean? No, I do. I do know what you mean. I I think that just from th- in thinking about going to an OBGYN, there are a lot of women who prefer to go to female OBGYN. And so I I can see that really. If you're in a situation where you're at the hospital and something like that has to be done, I guess I could see women, you know, saying I would prefer to have a woman. I think it's really good that you think that way that you're you consider the patient and consider, you know, there's an option here that I could do to make the patient more comfortable and that way that patient doesn't have to worry about that. So if there's a female nurse available that could do it, that makes perfect sense. It really does. I, I think it's also important to ask patients, well, uh, you know, I have to put this catheter in. Does this make you really uncomfortable? Because if, if it does, I can certainly go and find someone else to do it. But, I, you know, again, I guess you could argue both sides of the coin. Like, how often should you be going to get a colleague to do that kind of thing? I don't know. It's kind of hard. It's kind of tough. Where women usually would just put a catheter in a male without asking, maybe. I don't know that. 
Um, but I do know that if I'm going to put a catheter into a woman, then I, I ask. So I don't know. There's still some issues there, I guess, the things to think about from a practice standpoint. I think that's a really good discussion that we could, you know, maybe have again in the future, maybe even maybe even a special episode about men in nursing and kind of hash out some of this stuff because I don't, I don't know that I'd ever even thought about that really. And I do think that it's something to consider because we, we are supposed to be advocates for our patients. And so rather than just assuming that everybody's okay with it, but you know, you just kind of touched on something there, the fact that you can't necessarily always be going to get someone else to do a task for you because sometimes the floors are very busy and people, there just isn't anyone else to do something. And that's just how it is. It's, it gets complicated. It does. You know, one weird thing that I've found was that as late as 1982, now I graduated high school in 1981, and as late as 1982, men were not even allowed to attend some state-sponsored nursing schools. What? 1982. In fact, there had to be uh, sort of a dis- anti-discrimination law passed um, to make that, yeah. To, uh, that was in Tennessee? No, um, that was nationwide. In 1982, men were not, uh, not allowed to attend some state-sponsored nursing school. What? So I didn't look into that to any depth, but there was a case in Mississippi that I, I think it was that raised the issue up far enough so that there was legislation that um, that banned that discrimination for the future. That is just really fascinating. Yeah, and that was right when I graduated high school. So it hasn't been that long ago. No, I think it's definitely worth discussing. When I, I'm on social media a lot, just kind of looking, looking through the different posts people put on. And I follow a lot of nurses who have social media accounts where they just put different nursing things in their experiences. And I see a lot, a lot of male nurses that are coming up. They're young nursing students, new grads. So I think it's just going to increase as time goes on, as, as it becomes more accepted, as people get more comfortable with it and used to it, and it's not even an issue anymore. So I think it's worth talking about for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Tina. As nurses, we have some pretty difficult things to deal with, don't we? Oh, absolutely. I would agree with that 100%. And there's actually a really cool online counseling service called betterhelp.com. Have you ever heard of it? Yeah, I actually tried it out. Oh, really? What'd you think? Yeah, I thought it was super convenient. They matched me with a therapist in the first 24 hours. They have all licensed therapists. Well, that's really cool. I'm a little bit shy about seeing a counselor. I don't know why. It seems very personal to me to go into an office and sit in a waiting room. But this sort of is a little bit more appealing to me because it's less threatening. Yeah, it's really nice. You can just do a phone call or a video chat or even just texting and just be in the comfort of your own home. And it's a lot easier, I think. There's just a lot of advantages to it. It's affordable. They even have financial aid available. So if you guys want to try it out, go to betterhelp.com slash goodnurse and you'll get 10% off your first month. Again, that's betterhelp.com. That's H-E-L-P slash goodnurse. So I guess we can get into this story. So you guys, this is one of those stories where, you know, it doesn't have like sexual assault and that sort of thing. And I always try to uh, warn people before we talk about anything like that, but it's still, it's it's violent for sure and disturbing. So just to kind of let you know, this story is very disturbing. And if, if you're kind of not wanting to hear maybe about gun violence and that sort of thing, you might want to maybe skip the, maybe skip this one because it's bad. So this is the story of... An LPN, his name is Robert Stewart Flores, 
And he was an LPN and then decided to go back to school to get his RN. And, you know, David, this is something that lately, I would say over the past, what, maybe five years or so, that there's been a lot of talk about LPNs being phased out and not having not having jobs or, or having to work at nursing homes and that sort of thing because they were given more responsibility up until pretty recently. And then for some reason, it's like those responsibilities were taken away and they're not working in hospitals as much. And so I think a lot of LPNs are feeling like they need to go back and get their RN. Um, you know, I think maybe it might have been about 15 years ago, we had quite a number of LPNs. And certainly when I started in uh, 96 or 97, whenever it was, we had we had a lot of LPNs at the hospital then. Mm-hmm. A lot of the hospitals, same way. Although recently, there, I know one hospital in particular in this area had to bring them back because they were so short-staffed with registered nurses, which baffles the mind because there's so many nurses who are graduating every semester. I feel like how... There are nurses everywhere. It's just we don't have nurses wanting to work at the bedside in these hospitals It's because it's hard. It's just hard work. And the hospitals maybe aren't paying enough for what for how difficult the job is and how much responsibility is put on the nurse. And then so because you're not paying enough, the you're not get, they're not getting enough nurses to work. There's and so there's too much work for one person to have to do and it ends up there's this perpetual kind of circle thing that happens with these hospitals, some of these other hospitals. I wouldn't say it's that way where I work, but it's definitely, it can be that way sometimes some of these rural hospitals. And so this one hospital in particular I'm thinking of, they had to kind of bring LPNs back and sort of phase them back in to do that sort of like team nursing where the, the registered nurses are you know, responsible for like the assessments and doing the IV meds and then the yeah. LPN does the oral and all that stuff. Yeah. Well, nurses not wanting to work the bedside is a huge issue. And it's mm-hmm. one that's really pretty dear to my heart. I've got a lot mm-hmm. of opinions about it. Maybe that's a good episode for another show. I definitely think it is for sure. Yeah. Uh, but this this guy Flores, that was his name, Flores. Yes. Yeah, he was weird. There's some very strange things that definitely went on. He was uh, his classmates said that he was he was strange. His classmates remembered him being rude. He was kind of disruptive, kind of one of those people. I don't, you know, I'm sure everyone listening is going to be like, yeah, we had one of those. You know, someone who every time the teacher would would try to talk, um, they have to say something. They have to somehow interrupt and make an issue and just can't ever seem to stay on track. Well, this guy was kind of that that classmate, um, that student, and he would often get angry, seem to have a hard time controlling himself. And his classmates knew that he was struggling with his studies in nursing school, he failed peds, he and critical care. Now, when I when I hear that, I'm just thinking, what I don't I didn't even like. Maybe it's different state to state because I think that in the, where where we live, if you fail two classes, that's pretty much you're out of there. Yeah. So this must have there must be different standards maybe at this in this area. Right. When you fail that first class, when you know some of the people in school when I was going to school. You know, there would be, you know, a handful or a few, you know, that just didn't make it through one of those really difficult classes. It was hard for them for whatever reason. And and then, man, you know your head's on the chopping block then. You've got to 
pull out that 80% for every single class. There's just no, if you fail one more, you're gone. You're just, it's it's devastating. Right. Of course, this was a long, this was a long time ago. Was it 2002? So it was a while ago. I don't know if this if, if all those things changed or, you know, how that works. But I do know that for him to have failed two classes in nursing school, he he, he was struggling. And Right. There are a lot of red flags in this story for sure. Yes. His the other uh, students, his classmates remembered him bragging about having a concealed weapons permit. And I mean, a lot of people have, I mean, we live in Tennessee. <laughs> a lot of people have a concealed weapons permit. A lot of people carry a gun on them. I and mean, you see them <laughs> out walking around. I mean, it's people feel like that's their right to be able to do that and to protect themselves. And so... I don't know that that in and of itself for me, just because we're it's a prevalent, I don't know that that would have necessarily made him strange. But now the disruptive behavior and being, you know, having a hard time controlling himself and getting angry, those are definitely things that if he had the permit and had that behavior, that would have been concerning. Well, that wouldn't fly today, would it? Uh, at least I would hope it wouldn't. Well, I would hope so too. It's Man, because clearly that's just not a good combination. Well, as you get into this more, it becomes pretty apparent that the university police dropped the ball for sure. And I don't know mm-hmm. if it was just the university police or the police in town, but the ball was really dropped by law enforcement on this on this story. Yeah. And this guy, Flores, was he was 41 years old. He was a Gulf War vet. He was divorced, father of two children, worked at the VA hospital. I mean, he was an established adult working and had a family. And so it just seems, it seems really odd and very sad that this happened. But two professors from the College of Nursing had filed a report from the UA Police Department in April of 2001 concerning him. Instructor Melissa Goldsmith told police that Flores said he was having problems with a paper, but also had a lot of problems other than school. He thought about, quote, ending it all and, quote, might put something under the college. And I guess any reasonable person reading that would would probably not have a hard time guessing what that something would be. And that was a year and a half before the shooting. Mm-hmm. So according, according to the University Police Department report that was filed then on April 24th, 2001, it was about a year and a half before the shooting. The UAPD attempted to call him about the report at the time but couldn't reach him. Yeah, basically, basically they tried to they tried to call the guy, didn't reach him, and it sounds like they didn't do anything else. They, yes. And one of the one of the professors said, "Well, I'll just keep an eye on him." Well, yeah, you have an instructor who is concerned enough about the behavior of this student that she contacts the police. They try to reach out to him, and then when they aren't able to reach him, just never follow up on it. And one of the instructors will just keep an eye. I mean. I, I don't know. I mean, report any other incident, sure. So maybe like, okay, if we can't get in touch with him, then I'll watch if he does it again. I'll let you know. Maybe that kind of thing. Right. Well, you know, he this this guy was so angry. And one of the, you know, I was in the I was in the Navy for six years as a medic. And so when I came out of the Navy, I tried to get a, a, a job uh, in medicine. And really, even with all the training that I had in, in medicine in the Navy, and the work that I did, I wasn't licensed or able to do to do anything outside of uh, the military as far as medicine went, except being orderly, that kind of thing. Um, I got a job in a cath lab, 
But anyway, so I started thinking, well, maybe this guy was uh, a medic in the army, uh, but it turned out he wasn't even a medic. I thought maybe he was disgruntled because, um, you know, he'd gotten all this training and then gotten out of the service and was a- unable to use it and that sort of thing. And then went to nursing school and sort of had a grudge because, you know, they wouldn't accept any of his military training. But really, he was he was like a mechanic in the in the army. So I, I was surprised to find that out. But this guy really went off the deep end. He was very, very angry and, um, and was mad at his instructors mostly, I guess. Oh, yes. He was very angry. And he got to the point finally after just struggling, failing classes, being frustrated. He just blamed his instructors and blamed the school and went and shot and killed three of his nursing professors and then himself, turned the gun on himself. So the victims were Robin Rogers, who was 50 years old, Barbara Monroe, who's 45, and Cheryl McGaffick, who was 44, and all were his instructors. The thing is, the assistant professor, Robin Rogers, that was his first victim. She told friends and family that she had fears about Flores when he failed her class the previous semester. She reported reportedly voiced her concerns at a church service the Saturday night before the shooting. According to the nursing professor, Joanne Glittenberg, she was the one that was kind of telling this, that at church she was talking about how she was she was afraid. Robin Rogers asked that church members pray for her to be protected from Flores. And her husband, Philip, recalled that she had anxiety about Flores during the term that he failed. It's really difficult because that's your job. You can't expect everyone to go through and everyone to pass. It's just, that's not going to happen. Yeah. One of the other professors was sharing with her husband that she was really scared of the guy too, right? It was, they, were, they both were sharing with their husbands. Yeah, he wasn't, made, he was definitely not keeping it a secret how he felt. He was letting them know that he was not happy that they failed him or that, you know, he was failing out. He was blaming them. He felt like it was their fault. So another victim was clinical associate professor Cheryl McGaffick, and she was afraid of him. She was worried about his well-being. And a a family uh, spokesperson for her said that she had told her husband that she was scared. She expressed fear to her husband within the last six months and said he was arrogant, intimidating, often made rude interruptions during class and said talked about how angry he was and that that's what made her so afraid. You know, I, you can imagine being in this situation. I actually have considered going back to school to get my master's to to teach because I enjoy I enjoy teaching. I think I would enjoy edu- you know being in education. And then I think about this sort of situation and it's really scary because you get the wrong person and obviously they want to turn all their frustrations on you and blame blame you for everything and that's that's the sort of situation that we were in here. Yeah, I can't believe that the authorities didn't do anything about it. It really seems like a lawsuit should have happened. And maybe it did. I looked a little bit online to try to find out if there were any, you know, legal actions taken against the university, but I couldn't find anything. It's really sad that they really did try to notify the police and do something and they just were not protected. That's just it's just the way it is. They weren't protected. So about 8.30 a.m., he went into the College of Nursing. So you think, you know, first thing in the morning, classes are just getting started. For for me, our classes started around, some of them started at 8 and um, some of them at 9. So that's everything's just kind of getting started around that time. 
but typically very, you know, busy, kind of buzzing with activity, students everywhere. And he went into the College of Nursing with five guns. He proceeded to the second floor office of the of assistant nursing professor Robin Rogers and killed her. At 8.35, he went to the fourth floor classroom and killed Barbara Monroe and Cheryl McGaffick. Both were assistant professors of nursing. Students thought when he walked in with a gun, it was part of a Halloween thing. But he pointed the gun at the professor in the front of the room and asked, are you ready to meet your maker? Then he shot her in the chest and walked closer and shot her in the head. And students said that he was very calm and very nonchalant in his manner and his actions. Everyone immediately dropped to the floor, as you can imagine, and he walked to the back of the class up to the other professor and killed her. He initially told three students to leave the room, assuming maybe they were his friends. Then he releases the students and commits suicide shortly thereafter. It sounds like he didn't really have any animosity toward his his classmates. That, it seems, to me, it seems a little unusual. Usually someone, uh, they're in that situation because he's obviously unreasonable in his, in his thinking. His his thinking is is way off. And so it seems like he would at least have had someone, uh, one of his classmates that he would have had a problem with, but apparently not. It was, everything was aimed at these instructors. Yeah. I saw one interview from a student who was not one of the three that left. And mm-hmm. she said that when those three were asked to leave, that she thought that he was going to kill everybody in the room. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. It must have been terrifying. But thank goodness he let them all go. They think that his initial plan was to kill more people because of all the ammunition that he had. And then maybe, you know, because he came with five handguns and and around uh, 250 rounds of ammunition. So he seemed to be prepared for more than what he actually did. And I just wonder, did he just get, you know, mentally exhausted and just decided to end it at some point. I don't know. They looked for a bomb afterwards too, because he had said Mm -hmm. that he was going to put something under the school originally. Yeah. But they didn't find anything, of course. Yeah. And then, so 837, one of the students in an adjacent classroom called 911. At 840, the UA police officers get to the College of Nursing. 846, the, the TPD officers training respond. And then at 8.54, he's confirmed dead. So that's how fast all of this happened. 8.30 is when he walked in and 8.54, he was dead and had left all of this in his wake. So I don't know. I just feel like this story is, it's very tragic, obviously. It's, I don't know what to, you know, to think about it because I feel like the instructors did everything they could. What else are you supposed to do? Yeah, I don't know. Thankfully, we I think we look at things through a different lens these days. And yeah, you know, I, I think if those red flags appeared in a nursing school today, it would take very little for the mm-hmm. police to re- get heavily involved in a case like that. At least I would hope so. Yeah, I would too. I would too. This was a while ago and hopefully things have definitely changed. I would say th- there's been several incidents that have happened since then, not necessarily nursing schools, but other schools. And every time something horrible and tragic like this happens, it seems like we get more diligent about it and they, people take it more seriously. And then time goes by without anything like this happening. And then everybody kind of gets relaxed and kind of lets their guard down. 
and then before you know it, there's another story on the news of you know something like this happening. So I think it's important to kind of keep it out there in front, you know, in people's minds, like this sort of thing can happen, and to always be aware and be on guard and be sure and let someone know if you have, you know, strange feeling about someone, you know, not that you're, I think sometimes we're afraid, you know, we don't want to get someone in trouble. We don't want to cause problems for someone. If, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. Looking back, you can see it. If you're in, back in the situation before all this happened, you can be second guessing yourself. Like, well, what am I doing? What am I doing to this person? Am I going to ruin their life by you know, making these accusations. I think this applies at work too. You know, whatever the work environment we're in, whether it's a, um, you know, a family practice setting or a, a big academic medical center, I think it's really important that if you have concerns about someone, a coworker or a patient or whatever, that you bring those up. So that just re- reiterates what you said, of course. But I think our security at our hospital has a very low threshold for checking into something like that. They'll definitely mm-hmm. check, check into something like that. So, it's probably that way nationwide, but yeah, wherever you are, if you don't let those kinds of things go. Well, I guess that will do it for this week's bad story. And that's, like I said, it's kind of a bummer and I'm sorry about that. I do have a good hero story though, that I'm excited about because number one, it has nothing to do with COVID-19, which I'm so <laughs> sick of, I'm so sick of <laughs> talking about. So we actually have something and it's a recent story that happened and it's really neat. So this doctor is out at this baseball game and he looks over and there's someone yelling for help. And as it turns out, there's a family who was there with several children and the mom was kind of attending to the little girl who's just shy of being two years old. Her name was Adeline. And Adeline was sitting there eating a hot dog. Yes. And her her mom is just sort of sitting there watching her, not really thinking too much of it. And all of a sudden, Adeline stopped breathing and her face started turning blue. So that's why Anna like panicked. Anna's a nurse, by the way. She works at like a doctor's office. Yeah, family practice office nearby. Right. And I'm sure they have to know CPR, the Heimlich maneuver, that sort of thing. But she said, when it's your child, it's like all that goes, it goes out the window and you, she just panicked and was just like, somebody help me. Fortunately, there's a doctor right there, and this doctor came to the rescue, thank goodness. And he's actually an ophthalmologist that works uh, at a medical center as he's an instructor in, on, in the, at the medical school. And he showed up and did the Heimlich maneuver, and then the hot dog came up and cleared the airway, and little Adeline was able to breathe again. So all is well, but... What do you think the big takeaway from this story would be, David? Well, I think from talking to you before this episode, it definitely would have to do with uh, being careful with hot dogs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so the thing is, I I think that you know, hot dogs are something that I've all, I don't know how, I, I want to say my children's pediatrician kind of drilled that into my head. Don't let your kids eat hot dogs. I can remember when my 21-year-old's pediatrician sat right there in the room and said, hot dogs are terrible. They're full of nitrites. They're, they're, there's no nutritional value whatsoever. And they're the worst choking hazard. They're literally the, the same shape as your airway. Right. It's just a terrible idea. And I just, 
It's, I'm not going to sit here and say my children have never eaten a hot dog. But if you don't think I sit there and like cut them up in a thousand pieces oh, that's when what they we were did. little. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> chopping them the tiniest pieces. Yeah, because I was so, like his, his words were just stuck in my brain. You feel this pressure because you're out at a picnic, you're at a ball game. And what does everybody do? They eat hot dogs. Right. So. They had tried the Heimlich maneuver, I think, a couple of times before the doctor showed up. So, I mean, this little girl, she, it was definitely stuck in there. I can't imagine having to do a helmet maneuver on one of my own kids. How well, scary. And a two-year-old. Yeah. It was blue. Oh, my goodness. Scary. I would not want to be in that situation. I think I deal with adults all the time. I've never had to deal with children other than the couple of weeks that I had to do in nursing school as part of clinicals. And I, I said I don't want to deal with children. I just would be too hard. I don't, I just don't want to do it. So I think they're just so different. They're right. Everything about them is different. So I don't, I don't know. I think it, you think oh, I, I could handle it maybe if it was an adult, I'd be so afraid of breaking them. <laughs> this little two-year-old trying to do the Heimlich maneuver. Well, this doctor definitely had his wits about him. When he came over, he said, he, you know, he remembered that kids don't really have heart attacks. Usually if they have an arrest, it's almost always an airway issue. So at least he had sort of had his wits about him and Sounds like he was a true hero. He just dove right in and he did the right thing. And, and his Heimlich maneuver definitely worked, which was a blessing. Yeah. And his name is Dr. Steve Flynn. He was the, the doctor that came over and did the Heimlich maneuver. And he's the chief of ophthalmology at Oshner LSU Health in Shreveport and on the uh, faculty, a faculty member at the medical school at the Monroe Medical Center. So I think this family was very fortunate that he was there because, you know, you're cutting off your airway for anyone, but I would say, you know, even for a child like that, it's not going to take long. They're already turning blue. Yeah. They had a reunion at a game after this all happened. There's a picture in the article. It looks like uh, it was a really nice reunion. Oh, yeah. They all got together after a, or at another football game, so. It's pretty neat. I like this story. Yeah. The doctor said, she'll be part of my life forever. I think that he, he, it probably made a huge impression on his life as well. You know, the, this family, you think about the family and how thankful they are that he was there. But he's going to have that, in, you know, impression kind of um, seared into his mind forever too, that whole event that took place. That's right. And the opposite would have been true as well if he had, you know, gone and tried to to help her and then had been unsuccessful imagine the devastation and how how you would feel, you know, and I, I would imagine you probably have a hard time getting that thought out of your head. So I'm so glad this had a good outcome. Yes, me too. Well, I guess that kind of does it for our show this week. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. And I really appreciate it, David. It's been an interesting show. That's right. At least we get to end on a, a good positive note as usual. That's that's always nice. Well, you guys, I hope you have a good week. And be sure and find us. Look us up on Instagram at Good Nurse, Bad Nurse or Facebook at GNBN Podcast. Or you can email us at uh, Tina at GoodNurseBadNurse.com or just go to our website at GoodNurseBadNurse.com. I'd just like to hear from you. Send us your stories. I love to hear your hometown stories and whatever you want to tell me, words of encouragement, or if you hear me say something, you guys sometimes will let me know if I say something wrong. I love it. I don't mind it at all. But I hope you guys guys have a good week. And I just want to remind you that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse. (music) 